Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Smita Mystery, and you're listening to Investigates, the podcast that lifts the veil on Australia's biggest crimes and mysteries. Some people, they see, okay, this is a spy case. For some people, they see this is a case with an affair of the heart. Some people see other things in it. It's one of those things where it can speak to each person individually, depending on what they want to see out of it. On December 1, 1948, a man's body was found dead on Summerton Beach in Adelaide, South Australia. He was clean-shaven and wearing a suit and tie. He had no belongings or identification and the tags of his clothes had been removed. 70 years later, the case of the Summerton man, as he went on to be known, remains unsolved. One of Australia's most baffling mysteries is being re-examined. It involves the body of an unknown man found dead on a South Australian beach in 1948. And finally, the South Australian Attorney General has granted conditional approval to exhume the remains of the so-called Summerton Man, hoping finally to figure out who he is and what happened. Professor Derek Abbott from the University of Adelaide is still trying to solve the case today and may also share a very special connection with the man. He joins us now. I first became aware of the case around 1995. I happened to be sitting in a laundromat and uh, as one does, picks up a magazine while you're watching the washing going around. So uh, it had an article about the top 10 unsolved mysteries in Australia and I think Harold Holt was number one. Mm -hmm. And this case was like number two or three on the list. And it intrigued me, but I didn't do anything with it at the time but that was just my first awareness and then sometime around 2007 was my next contact with it where I saw another article in my local newspaper which talked about the case and gave a lot more detail and even published a photograph of the so-called code letters that the Somerton man had written on the back of a poetry book and so it's there where I got interested because I thought, ah, I've got something to go on now. Um, I could set this as a project to my students to examine these letters and see if we can find out if it really is some kind of secret code or not. A secret pocket in the waistband of the man's pants revealed one small clue. In the pocket was a piece of paper rolled tightly with the words, to man should, which is Farsi for the end or finished. It was later discovered that the paper had been torn from the final page of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which was a translation of verses by an 11th century Persian poet. Police advertised in a local paper asking if anyone had the book with the words ripped out. Surprisingly, a local man handed in the book and claimed it had been thrown in the back of his car around the same time the body had been discovered. One of the guys that handed it in, uh, the police found 
to be a good match to the torn out bit of paper that was found in the man's pocket. And it was on the back cover of this book that they found some strange letters that look like some sort of code, very lightly uh, penciled in on the back. And there's also a couple of two or three phone numbers on the back of the book as well. One of them turned out to be the phone number of uh, a local lady who uh, had trained as a nurse in Sydney and had recently moved to Adelaide. And uh, we know that one of the phone numbers was just a a phone number of a bank, so that's not very interesting. And we're not sure what the other one was, Mm -hmm. but uh, it was probably some other business or something. But anyway, the police eliminated those other phone numbers as not being very interesting. But they found the, uh, the lady to be of interest because her house was just five minute walk away from where the man was found dead. Okay. So here you get this, you've got a, a guy dead on the beach and he's essentially got the phone number of somebody who's five minutes walk away from him. Mm-hmm. So there's ov- obviously in the minds of the police uh, they felt the connection there and so um, they knocked on her door and she <clears throat> she basically uh, denied all knowledge of this man. Uh so that's where the story is left. But then, and then over the next 60 years, you know, people tinkered with these so-called letters on the back of the book mm-hmm. that looked like a code, and no one got anywhere with it. Uh, so I set it as a project to my students. I uh, I didn't say to them, look, I want you to crack this, because <laughs> I, I realized that's probably a bit too hard, given that no one's done it for 60 years. What I, would I ask them to do? to come up with different types of codes that were used in World War Two, in the World War Two period and try to el- eliminate it as being that type of code or that type of code, etc. And so we went through a whole different bunch of coding schemes and we're able to eliminate them on different grounds. Like the most simplest one is, um, you know, there's types of codes that require pairs of letters, so you need an even number of letters and uh, there's an odd number of letters on this so-called code so you can quickly eliminate that one Mm -hmm. and so on and so we we went through a whole list of them and kept eliminating them and uh, at the end of the day we kind of found that hey this really isn't a code there (laughs) there's nothing really there and so we did some statistical analysis on the letters and found that it's a it's the closest fit is just being the first letters of words in English. Okay. And we tried other languages as well, and English seems to be the best fit. And, you know, people do that sometimes. They just um, write first letters down of words just as a sort of memory jogger. Um, so that's just, this is all it could be, um, something quite banal perhaps, um, a memory jogger of places he'd been to or names of horses and horse races or, you know, anything, shopping list. <laughs> uh, so who knows what it is. Um, but we're pretty convinced now that it's not some sort of um, sophisticated World War II spy code or something like mm-hmm. that, which is what uh, the conspiracy theorists like to say it is. 
The secret code, along with autopsy findings that found he was a fit 40 to 50 year old man in top physical condition, sparked conspiracy theories that the man was a Russian spy. And while the letters remained inconclusive, a phone number, also found in the book, led police to a 27 year old nursing student. At the time, she asked for her name not to be made public, and when detectives questioned the nurse about the Summerton man, she denied any knowledge of him. So after a little bit of investigation, I found on the police file, it basically doesn't class this case at all as a homicide. Basically, when you read through the police file and all the notes on the case, the attitude of the police at the time was that this was a suicide and um, that's how they were dealing with the case at the time. Derek couldn't stop thinking about this young nurse. She had only lived five minutes from where the Summerton man's body had been found. Was it just a coincidence that her phone number was in the book? Or was there something more to the story? So, okay, this lady did raise their suspicions. They did feel that she knew him. But because they were handling this as a suicide and not as a homicide, they were convinced at the time it was some sort of suicide, uh, they didn't um, follow her up um, any further. So what did you find when you looked into her? So I thought, well, perhaps there's no wrongdoing. Uh, however, she might still know something about this guy. So I thought, well, i better find out who she is. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it was quite tricky. It was like solving a very difficult crossword puzzle. But basically there was enough information in the newspapers at the time to figure out who she was mm -hmm. because it... The newspapers gave out some information. They said, um, you know, she was originally from Victoria. She had trained at the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, moved to Adelaide at a certain time. So you've got various information about her movements. And so by looking at um, nursing enrollment records at the Royal North Shore Hospital and electoral world records and that sort of thing, you're able to piece together who she is mm -hmm. and uh, track down her identity. I still wasn't, even when I found her identity, I was still a bit skeptical about it with myself. Like um, I kept thinking, well, how do I really know I've found the right person? Because yeah. I, I, uh, I even found the phone number in the local phone book of the time and it... Um, and the phone book had listed her as Sister J.E. Thompson. Uh, and so, I've, you know, because it said sister and there's somebody had trained as a nurse, I was thinking, okay, so this is very, this is good. <laughs> but then I had this nagging thought, well, could this be somebody different? And how do I know that this is the nurse from the Royal North Hospital? And is this actually a nun, I was thinking. Mm. Uh, uh, how do I know that sister really means nurse? And so these are, these thoughts were going around in my head. So I, I was very sceptical about my own finding myself. So the way I sort of closed the loop, so to speak, was that when I visited Victoria, I followed up locals where she grew up 
and uh, managed to obtain a photograph of her. And then I flew back to Adelaide and with that photograph, I went uh, and visited. Paul Lawson was the guy who uh, made a plaster bust of the Somerton Man that okay. you may have heard of. Mm-hmm. He moulded it directly off the uh, cadaver in the mortuary because the police had asked him to do that uh, because the body was about to be buried and so they felt he wanted um, a bust of the dead person so that they could show it to people after the burial uh, for identification purposes. And so that's what the police did at the time. They took um, Mrs. Thompson uh, to see the plaster cast in Paul Lawson's office which was in the Adelaide Museum. And so Paul Lawson had actually seen this lady um, firsthand back in 1949, and he was still alive. So I went with this photograph and uh, visited Paul Lawson in his home. Uh, he was in his 90s at the time. And, uh, and without uh, speaking, uh, I just... Um, handed him the photo, and I didn't say a word. And he looked at the photo, raised his spectacles, and he said, why, this is Mrs. Thompson. (laughs) (laughs) And so I felt at that point that I'd nailed it and I'd found out who she was. Convinced the nurse knew more, Derek set out to track her down. But by the time the professor uncovered her name, Jessica Jo Thompson, in 2009, it was too late. The nurse had died in 2007. Joe had worked at the Royal North Shore Hospital, but at the time of the Somerton man's death, she'd moved to Adelaide and was living in Glenelg, just 400 metres from where the man's body was found. Convinced that the nurse and the Somerton man had a connection, Derek continued to dig and discovered that Joe had a son named Robin. Further investigations led him to believe that Robin could be the son of the Somerton man, perhaps born out of wedlock to the Somerton man and Joe. And another theory developed. If Robin was in fact the Somerton man's son, had he seen him the day he died? Well, a couple of things transpired. You know, one day I was just staring at a photo of the Somerton man and um, I I was looking at his ears. I thought, there's something strange about those ears they don't look normal to me, and but I don't know how to describe it. So I, I went to an anatomist at Adelaide Uni and said, um, am I right in thinking these ears are, are odd? And he said, yes, they are. And I said, how do you articulate that? And he said, well, basically the upper hollow of the ear is much wider than the lower hollow, and that's not normal. It's usually the other way around. And I thought, ah. Okay, and then uh, later on, I was looking at a photograph of Robin Thompson and found that he had a similar ear condition. And so I went back to the same anatomist and I said, "Um, is this, can this uh, be hereditary? (laughs) And is it quite rare? And he confirmed that. He says, yes, it's very rare and it it can be passed down genetically. I thought, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) And... uh, then another thing I noticed uh, when looking at a photo of Robin Thompson is that two of his teeth are missing. Um, his uh, canine teeth are right next to his middle teeth. And so 
the incisors, which are normally in between those two, were missing. But there were no gaps. And so I went to a dental expert at Adelaide Uni and I said, can people just grow teeth like that? And they said, uh, yes. And that's also a, can be a congenital condition as well that can be passed down. And they said, because it's symmetrical and it's on both sides, it's highly likely that this is the case. It's not like um, he had them pulled out or he lost them by accident. And so I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. And then on careful reading of the inquest into the Somerton man, I looked at it carefully again where they report about the Somerton man's teeth. And basically it says that his, uh, well, it doesn't say in words, but it gives a chart, a tooth chart showing that his lateral incisors were also missing. And then the pathologist, when giving evidence, said something along the lines of, and if you were to see the man smiling, you wouldn't notice any gaps. Mm -hmm. And so I, I nailed it then. I, I said, yes, he's got exactly the same condition as Robin Thompson. So there's two things now. There's the ears and the teeth. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I've spotted a few other things that I don't want to bore you with, but it, it just seemed that the evidence was mounting that there was a connection here. Professor Abbott's investigations led him to discover that Robin had died in 2009. While Robin had since passed away, Derek was determined to find out if Robin, the man believed to be the son of the Summerton man, had children of his own. I went on that track and uh, quite soon afterwards I found that he had a, had a daughter. And um, so I thought, well, it's quite unlikely that she will know anything However, I guess I should leave no stern unturned, mm -hmm. and so I went off and interviewed her. The professor's research helped him track down Robin's daughter, Rachel Egan. He wrote Rachel a letter, and after meeting in person, the pair went on to develop a relationship. Rachel had been put out for adoption as a baby, and it wasn't until she was in her 20s that her mother, Roma, made contact with her. Roma had been a dancer in the Australian ballet when she'd fallen pregnant with Rachel. Derek believes that Rachel, now his wife and mother of his three children, is the Summerton man's granddaughter and could be the key to solving the 70-year mystery. Her reaction was one of quite scepticism. Mm. She didn't think, think that was the case, uh, that her father was related to the Summerton man. And even today, I think she's sort of 50-50 sitting on the fence. She sees the evidence for it. But she can also see other evidence against it as well. She feels that her, her father's supposed grandfather has a lot of physical similarities nevertheless with her father. And so she, she I think it would be fair to say she sits on the fence. Mm -hmm. But she feels that she would like to be no one way or another. So she... Um, supports the idea of, um, you know, a DNA sample being taken of the Somerton man to establish which way it really is. And is that what, what you, really is. is that what you need to kind of prove that one way or the yes. other? So, uh, so where I've gone with that is in the police museum uh, sits the plaster bust today uh, that was made of the Somerton man 
and because that plaster bust was molded directly off the body, there are actually hairs stuck into it of the substant man. So uh, my team have been able to extract hairs from this bust, and we have a very good DNA lab at Adelaide Uni, and we've been able to extract DNA from the hair. Twice Derek has petitioned the South Australian government to have the body of the Somerton man exhumed, and twice he was denied. But this year, a decade after Derek embarked on his quest to discover the mystery man's identity, the Attorney-General granted conditional approval for the man's body to be exhumed. But no paperwork was ever signed. We had a shot at this about five years ago and got very, very little out of it. But we got enough DNA to establish that there actually is viable DNA in there. Mm -hmm. There just wasn't enough of it. Mm. (laughs) And um, five years later, this, this year in fact, we tried it again and we got a little further um, because techniques have improved over the last five years. We were able to deal with uh, smaller amounts of DNA and uh, we managed to get what's called the whole mitochondrial genome of the Somerton man. What that means is that's the part of the DNA that's inherited from, from your mother and unfortunately that is not the, the DNA one needs to do an identification because the Somerton man is a male, this is not passed down to his descendants. The parts of the DNA we need are called the autosomes and uh, unfortunately their concentration levels are much lower in the hair samples. And so, but this year we actually managed to extract some and we got about 2% of the amount we really need. So 2% is not enough to go on. We've had a play with it. I've done various tests with it, 2%. All we can get out of that DNA is uh, basically an ethnicity test, mm-hmm. and it c- confirms um, roughly what we know already, that he's from the North Atlantic region, mm-hmm. you know, which could be America or European countries around the Atlantic. So that's all it tells us. So we really need uh, more DNA than that um, uh, to do a proper identification. But we're we're, we're stoked. Uh, Getting 2% is very encouraging, and it means our techniques have improved so much over the last five years. Yeah, it's incredible. And so then then another aspect is that the police file on this case is officially open. Okay. Uh, It's not closed. And so also the police have uh, an imperative also to do something about this case and uh, and uh, identify the body. So I think at this stage my attitude is to sit back and let the police fight it out with the Bookmakers <laughs> Association. Uh, so, um, so I think possibly something will happen in yeah. the next um, in the next year or two. Um, and so I think it's a matter of waiting and seeing. Yeah. And just finally, I mean, why, why do you think people are still fascinated by this 70-year-old mystery? I think people are, are fascinated with any case that's got an unsolved identity because 
people always like conclusion and, and closure. And if something's hanging and you don't know the identity of somebody, somebody, it's there's always that nagging feeling that you want to want to fill that in. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And so I think it's quite normal. Yeah. And um, and because there's so many loose, strange twists and turns in this case, and and loose ends. Um, uh, you know, people that read about the case um, can kind of fit any story they want to in their minds into the case because of there's so many loose ends. And so, you know, for some people, um, they see, okay, this is a spy case. For some people, they see um, this is a case with an affair of the heart. Um you know, some people see other things in it. Um, so it it can it's one of those things where it can speak to each person individually, depending on what they want to see out of it. So that's why it's engaging and is meaningful to different people. If all the pieces fall into place, if the DNA of the Summerton man matches the DNA of Derek's wife Rachel, the seventy-year mystery may finally be solved. But until then. The mystery of the Summerton Man still fascinates thousands of Australians. And who the Summerton Man was may never really be known. Thanks for listening to this episode of Investigates. To read more about the Summerton Man, head to newidea.com.au. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. I'm Smitty Mystery and I'll see you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.